Psalms chapter 78, we'll read two verses, verses 15 and 16 for our text this morning. Psalms 78, 15 and 16. There we read, He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And we'll apply the title of the first words of verse 15, He clave the rocks. Psalm 78, if you're familiar, is a summary or rehearsal pretty much of the Exodus journey of God's chosen people, Jacob and his offspring went down to Egypt, and then Moses was raised up to deliver them, the Exodus journey, the promised land, so forth and so on. So the 78th is a glorious passage of Scripture, and at the same time a very sad passage of Scripture. Depending on whether we're looking at the divine perspective or whether we're looking at the human perspective, of course, God's dealing with His chosen nation, both in Egypt and then bringing them out through the Exodus, is a pattern for all of us and has been forevermore. And it certainly is a great manifestation and a wonderful display of not only who God is, but what God does in His wisdom and His sovereignty to and with His people. When we look at the human response of the elect nation and their provoking, their unappreciation of all God did for them, how forgetful they were, how they complained and murmured and were so fickle and their penalty of that, it's very sad. But in essence, that's a description of life itself since the fall, isn't it? God always on display in His great and wondrous works and glory and manifestation of grace and goodness to the sons of men and man being unappreciative, complaining and murmuring and disregarding where those things come from. Probably you, as you contemplate or have contemplated this, feel like I do with the psalmist when he says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His wonderful works. But they do not. So we will both feel sad as we look at some things today concerning these miracles of water out of the rock. And at the same time, we will rejoice in God's grace unto them. But remember, it is God's grace. And that's what you see in Psalm 78 and throughout the Bible. And I have a phrase that I've always loved in that. It's when God does the doing, that's grace. And this Bible is nothing but God doing the doing. And that is His grace. And He continually did that with them. And likewise, He does that with us. There is a similar passage, if you refer to it, uh, like the 78th Psalm. And that is Psalms 105, 106, and 107. Where many of these things are similarly repeated, the language being different in that regard. But it is God's grace. And today we want to look at these things in the reference to the water out of the rock. But do remember as we look at this particular passage that all of God's works and grace and goodness 
to the children of Israel and what he did and how he dealt with them was all leading up to, of course, the great manifestation of grace in sending Christ to the cross. And now on this side of the cross, we look back to that. But on this side, the Old Testament side, everything was leading up and pointing to that. So it pointed to, in the Exodus journey, now on this side, we look and point back to that wonderful display of God's grace. So always look for Christ in these things in types and symbols and various manifestations. We want to look at he claved the rocks in three points. Number one, the miracle itself. Number two, the means God used to accomplish the miracle. And thirdly, the mistake made by those who were involved in the miracle namely Moses and Aaron. So first of all, the miracle. The scripture is in the plural here when it says he clave the rocks plural in the wilderness. And God did this on two occasions. Uh, but let's just think about the miracle first and foremost of water out of a rock. If you're familiar, when... I guess we will have to mention the time frame here because the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, were in their first year, and had not even reached Sinai yet in the giving of the law. When we find in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, the incident which brought about this miracle of water out of the rock. They were encamped at a place called Rephidim, just uh, not too far from Sinai in the mountain range of what is called Horeb. And they were without water, and the miracle was performed of bringing water out of what, as far as we know, solid rock in that regard. Now, when you read that passage, as well as the companion passage in Numbers 20, the first 13 verses, which are the two references to our text here, you see that, again, both of these indicate that there was no water at all, and they came directly out of rock. So that's quite a miracle when you stop and think about it. But I want you to consider first something else. I mentioned the grace of God in all of this, and indeed it was. You might think, well, why would anybody camp or stay where there is no water? Well, remember, they were led by God with the pillar of the cloud in the day and the pillar of fire by night. And when it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. So these places where they were, Rephidim in the first, and Numbers 20, they were in the wilderness of Zin at a place called Kadesh, and it actually was Kadesh Bardia. Both of these places that they were at were God's designated camping spots. So it wasn't like that they made a poor choice of camp spots where there was no water, like many humans have done, or settled in a spot where there was no water and involved either having to move or starve or die or whatever, you know, a hardship. God determined this. And I think that's noteworthy because if God determined for them to be in a place where there was no water, he had a plan to give them water. And in giving them water through these two miracles, here again, he puts himself on display of no matter what the need, I can take care of it. So, so this was God's design, okay? For them being there and being in need of water. 
Now, anybody that knows anything about a rock knows that it's incapable of producing water. It just doesn't happen, does it? I mean, everything about a rock, you know, it makes good building material, but it's compared to the human heart symbolically as being lifeless, cold, dead. Uh, you know, we don't like them in our fields. They're good for throwing at some things sometimes, but, you know, uh, they're very limited, aren't they, in, in being productive in any way, shape, or form unless you want something hard to drive on or something to build with. But producing water, again, unheard of. And yet two miracles, and God brought water out of a rock. Now, think about that miracle and the degree of that miracle. How many people had to be satisfied with water? It's estimated that there could have been two million people, a million and a half. And who knows how many herds they had. I mean, when you think about the Exodus journey, if God had not organized them and laid down certain criteria the way he did, you talk about a mess. It had been the biggest mess you ever seen. But it was not. Everything was orderly and arranged. So... Again, you know what it's like when we go to a campground other times. I mean, it's going to be an absolute mess. But God took care of everything. He took care of their clothing. He took care, again, of, of food. He, he took care of all of it. He took care of everything that would be necessary for them. And in these two instances, again, water out of a rock for, again, over a million people and how many animals. That takes a lot of water. Some of us have to provide water for a few animals or a herd of animals or a herd of cows or something. They drink a lot of water. I wish at times they didn't drink so much water. It wouldn't be so much trouble. But this many people, a lot of water. So point being, this was no small, small miracle. And there are no small miracles with God. Now, in both 17 and 1 of Exodus and 20 and 1 of Numbers, you could read that and reference that, and we'll reference some things in those chapters before we're done today, Lord willing. But both of them speak to the effect that the Lord brought them to those places because that's where they abode and where the cloud stopped in that regard. Now, the Scripture here, let me go back. When we read those instances we read in Exodus where Moses smote the rock and water came forth. In the second incident, he was to speak, but he smote the rock twice, and again, water came forth. Well, how did the water come forth out of that rock? It didn't sweat itself out, you know. Well, our text tells us here, he clave the rocks. There was an opening, a breach, when Moses struck those rocks Something opened, the rock opened, and then the water come out. Quite a miracle when you stop. Have you ever seen anything like that? I have not. I mean, and again, not a trickle of water, but enough water to sustain this many people and animals for a long period of time. Literally, the text here says what? Not only he gave them drink as, as it came out of great depths, and you remember in the flood, God opened the deep and water came out. In verse 16, it says, streams out of the rock and cause waters to run like rivers. So this is a lot of water out of solid rock. But it came about by the breach 
or the opening that God made there. Over in Psalms 105, a companion scripture in verse 41 says, He opened the rock and waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. Now, we live in an arid area out here, and we see waters in different places, but rarely do you see an artesian-type well in a desert, do you? The closest thing is I tried to rack my memory to anything like this is down in the Grand Canyon at uh, the Indian Gardens, they call it, on that Bright Angel Trail. About four miles or so down there, there's this beautiful cluster of big cottonwoods and men, Indians and others have lived there, farmed there because there's water running out of those rocks in abundance. It's a nice, beautiful, pretty little stream. And my memory doesn't serve me real well, but I remember when we saw that just being amazed. Where does this water come from in this desert, you know? And yet here it is, this one place and it's just coming out of the rocks and the ground there. And so that's what sticks in my imagination as I try to visualize something of this. But again, that does not fit the degree or the magnitude of the water that came forth from this miracle. So God did this again one time at Rephidim in the first year when they were on the Exodus journey. And then at the end of the Exodus journey, over 38 years later, in the 40th year, he did this at Kadesh Barnea. So it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that this miracle was performed at the beginning and at the end. Now, think about that for a moment. Because a lot happened on the Exodus journey, didn't it? In fact, it was one big traveling funeral procession. Right? Because from Kadesh Bardia is where in the first couple of years there where the spies were sent in to check things out. And they came back and ten of them, you know, gave an ill report and Joshua and Caleb stood by and said, we can do it. And remember, they had to wander then for 38 years in the wilderness because of that report and that generation would die. So a lot of people saw this miracle twice. Some only once. The ones who started out and were unbelieving, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. They never lived to see the last one. But the younger ones who were young at that time, you know, especially the men under 20 and so forth and so on, would have seen the first one and the second one. Which makes it even more ironic because you'd think even as children or something like that, if they'd have seen or heard of the first one, they wouldn't have been doing the same thing 38 years later and murmuring and complaining like their moms and dads did. So as it began, so it ended with these types of miracles. Now, the water, I want to say to you, and the miracle, like most miracles, because, you know, God's grace is simply put into miracles, isn't it? Every miracle, really in some sense, it's hard to say anything that God does is not a miracle, isn't it? Because... It is undeserved, and God is under no obligation. So what God does is always an act of his own volition and his own grace in that respect. And so the people he did this to were very undeserving of the miracle. And if they had deserved it, it wouldn't have been grace. What do I mean by undeserving? Because the scripture tells us that they 
gripe, complain, and moan continually about their circumstances, don't they? I mean, hard to put up with. They pitched in Rephidim, 17 and 1 of Exodus, and there was no water. Again, remember, God designed that place for them to be there. So what do the people do? They chide with Moses, give us water we can drink. Uh, you know, why do you tempt the Lord? The people murmured against Moses. Why did thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? You know, pointing at Moses like they always did and Aaron, blaming him. Why did you bring us? And you know, it, it's so ironic. If you remember, in Egypt, they were begging to get out. You remember that? They were pleading. They were crying unto God. You know, deliver us. Hear our cry. God delivered them. And now then when things get going rough, they point a finger at Moses. Why did you bring us out? Why didn't you just leave? Oh, this is something else, is it not? Same way in Numbers chapter 20, it says that they gathered against Moses and Aaron. They chode with Moses and then said something stupid like this. Would God we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. In other words, we'd have been better off just to go down in the pit with Korah or our other brethren. Then verse 4 again, the accusation, Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord in this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? Wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or figs or vines or pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. The ultimate complainers. Ultimate complainers. So they were undeserving of the miracle. And I think that's pretty much true of all miracles, isn't it? Well, there's numerous things we could say, but one thing we want to say before we leave off this point is remember there is a deeper meaning here than just satisfying the physical need of thirst by bringing water out of the rock. And the Apostle Paul makes mention of that and of this picture and of the true meaning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. There he says, and he's using here the uh, analogy, comparison, or metaphor, however you want to look at it, in chapter 10 here of the Exodus and the people and Moses. And in verse 4 he says, And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So again, we obviously are missing it if we just see a miracle of satisfying physical thirst because the imagery here, the symbolism here, the lesson here is, as we sang a few minutes ago, again, Christ was there in the pillar, in the cloud, the rock, the rock of ages, as we sang, is symbolical in a picture of God manifested in Christ and that out of him, that eternal rock, which is immutable and cannot move, is what it is, the same yesterday and today forever. Out of it comes what? Living water. Water, living water here for the physical thirst. But remember what Christ said to the woman of the well, I can give of you water that you'll never thirst again. 
So, don't miss that point. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about here. They drank of the grace of God. They enjoyed the grace of God and His blessings there and did now acknowledge who and where was giving them that, nor were they appreciative of the miracle. But it was indeed a great miracle on two occasions. So let's look at the means. How God gave them water. Now, God is not limited to means in any way, shape, or form except according to His own wise counsel. By that I mean there's more than one way God could have given them water rather than cleaving a rock and having it come out. I do not believe, obviously, there was a better way because God does all things well and cannot be improved upon. But just to uh, get you thinking here a little bit, God could have said, make you pots of pottery and set them out and I'll cause it to rain every morning right after the manna is gathered and you can have all the water for yourselves and your animals. I mean, could God do that? Of course he could. And God could have done it in a more elaborate way than I described. God could have made water stand in a puddle on the sand if he wanted to for them and their animals to drink out of. It wouldn't even have needed a container. I mean, God could have caused a bush to grow up overnight that would make the shape of a bowl and rain. God is not limited, you see, in what he could have done. He could have brought them to this place where there was no water and then said, okay, now you got a need of water. Uh, Get me two or three guys and I'm going to give them direction and I'm going to direct them out here to a spring that they can go to and you'll find enough water for everybody. It's always been here. You just didn't know where it was. He didn't do that, did he? God could have also, as is very customary back in Old Testament time, he could have pointed them and said, okay, bring so many men and their shovels and I will show you where to dig for wells of water. And then after you have dug, you will have water and you can draw it out and so forth and so on. Uh, He could have done that, couldn't he? So he could have done something where they would have not had to lift a finger. They could have laid in their tents and water would have run in their mouth if he had so desired. Or he could have included them in some effort and some work on their own responsibility like gathering the manna in order to get water to drink. But he didn't do none of that. He done something far superior to that. He broke open a rock and a river ran out of it. I mean, you can't beat that, can you? But this was his means. But again, God, remember, is not limited by means. And again, remember, what God does is always with a purpose and a design. What is that design? That design is that God would be acknowledged as the source of that grace, the source of that blessing, the source of that miracle, and be glorified, extolled, exalted, praised, and worshipped by those who are the beneficiaries. The goodness of God deserves our worship in that respect. I think this is one reason, and I'm just injecting this here, why God didn't tell them to dig wells. Because if they had been involved in it any way, shape, or form, then what would have been the temptation or the tendency? We did it. This is what we done. You know, we shoveled for two days. We dug it 15 feet. We found the water. You know, I watched, I remember a statement from an old show a guy did one time. He said, I found it where it wasn't. You know, well, 
kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, in the desert, you can say that, but, you know, when you dig in the right place, you can find a well. There's wells over there in Palestine in places where you wouldn't even think. But, again, God made water where it wasn't when he clave these rocks asunder and a river flowed out of them. So, like Gideon, if you remember, this is a good illustration. I believe it's in Judges chapter 7 and verse 2, where Gideon had that force of 32,000 men, you know, and was going to go against the Midianites. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. This is not, we're not going to do it this way for a simple reason. Because if you take a force of 32,000 and go down there and whip them, you know what you're going to do? You're going to pat yourself on the back. And the word literally is you're going to vaunt yourself, meaning you're going to glorify yourself. And you're going to say, look at what we did. Boy, we gave them a whooping, didn't he? And the problem with all that is we, 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 we. Well, when God whittled it from 32,000 to 300, then it was he, 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 not we, we, we. And that's the way God designs things. And these miracles, as well as all of God's miracles, whether they were performed by prophets, Moses, other prophets of the Old Testament, or Jesus Christ and the apostles in the New Testament, are all designed that He gets the glory, not the we. The means involved always takes a back seat. So God designed the means of how this was going to be designed. And of course, it is no mystery that Moses, Aaron, were involved in this. And also, I want you to mention, since they were the intercessors for God, one of them the priest, one of them the intercessor, also the rod. Now, the rod is very important. I don't have much time to spend on this, but remember the rod. When Moses was in the wilderness of Midian and God called him at the burning bush, and Moses was flabbergasted at how this was going to happen, what God had said he was going to do. He said, what's that in your hand, a rod? Okay, throw it on the ground, throw it on the ground. What happened? It became a snake. The significance of the rod started right there. It was, it was like the empowering scepter of Moses that God gave him. And he did that in Egypt before Pharaoh. And then remember, God used the rod in the plagues. You know, smite the waters of Egypt, they became blood. Smite the dust and the lice would come about. Lift it up toward heaven and hail and thunder and so forth. Remember that? So the rod has been a means all this time as well as Aaron and Moses. And it was so even at the Red Sea. Remember, it was the rod that Moses used to part the sea and the rod that closed the sea back on the Egyptians. So the rod has always been there, again, as a manifestation of the presence and power of God. In fact, there's a, a verse. I'll just give you one verse here for lack of time. Way back in Exodus in that fourth chapter that speaks of God's design throughout the Exodus journey of this very thing. In the fourth chapter in verse 17. And he says, And thou shalt take this rod in thine hand wherewith thou shalt do signs. And so that was not only in Egypt, but throughout the Exodus journey. So it was used here also. Now, another thing we see here, about God's means, something unique in the two miracles is this. And this is important, I believe, because it's going to uh, come up again in our third point, excuse me, on the mistake. In Exodus chapter 17, where we read about the first miracle there, in verse 6, it speaks to this effect. Notice, God instructs Moses, take that rod, take it in thine hand and go, 
And behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So there's Moses, there's the rod, and note there, there's God. Now, what does it mean, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb? That, obviously, that doesn't mean that there was uh, people were looking at God. But how did God manifest himself in this? Well, he came down in that cloud, didn't he? Remember that? So obviously here, like when he came down over the tabernacle and things like this that you read about on the Exodus journey, this was a specific rock, obviously, that God pointed out where Moses was to be and Moses was to go and Moses was to smite because the Lord said, I will stand there before thee. So wherever that pillar was of the Shekinah glory of God, Moses went to that spot. Now, we all know what well-witching is about, but it ain't nothing like this. I mean, God pointed the spot, Moses struck it, and out come a river of water. Why is that important? Because we don't see that in the book of Numbers at the end of the journey. So he smote the rock the first time, and the waters came out exactly as God said it should be done. On the second time, he was instructed in the 20th chapters of Numbers very differently. In fact, let me just reference there. And if you're turning to those places, just keep a couple of fingers in there, and it'll make it easier for you. In Numbers chapter 20, here is his instruction. Take the rod, verse 8, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so, shalt, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Okay, in that place, it's not mentioned that the Lord would stand before. And it's also mentioned that he is to speak to the rock with the rod in his hand, but nothing is mentioned about smiting there whatsoever is there. And I think that's going to be very important now when we come to the third point of the mistake. Okay? Before we leave this, I want to throw in a quick scripture, again, to keep you thinking about how, again, all of this represents Christ. There is a scripture, I believe, that when we talk about the means of this water and this miracle, also refers to Christ and Him giving living water. Moses was what to the children of Israel? He was a leader. He was an intercessor. He was God's spokesman to the people, was he not? He was the one that the petition, the people made their petitions to when they had needs before. So he was the ultimate intercessor in that regard. Aaron, on the other hand, was what? The high priest. Christ was prophet, priest, and king, obviously. And again, the kingly part to me is represented there in the power of that rod. I mean, there was where the power was, wasn't it? When Moses, the intercessor, did something with that rod, God's power was on display. So again, even in the persons of Moses, Aaron, and the rod, you see Christ depicted there in all three of his offices, prophet, priest, and king. At least I see it very clearly. Well, the scripture I want to mention to you is in Psalms 110 verse 2. A very familiar passage when I read it. Psalms 110 and verse 2. 
I'll read one for context. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now notice that, the correlation here. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength. What was the rod that Moses has? It was the rod of strength, wasn't it? It was a rod of power. It was a rod of authority. And God's the one that did that. Otherwise, it would have just been a walking stick. Here, the reference is, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. What's he referencing here? Ultimately, that's Christ. It will be personified in the person of Christ. All that we're seeing here in the miracles and the means is personified in Christ who as Savior will give the living water to the souls of men whereby they will live eternally. Not just water of a rock that will sustain you physically for a period of time, but the living water that will sustain sinners forever and ever. So that, that's a nice correlation there, I believe, in Psalms 110 to keep us on track of not losing sight of Christ. All right, finally, the mistake. The mistake. And there's much debate, and I don't have time to go into all of it, but I will entertain some thoughts here and give you mine on what is the ultimate mistake here. We mentioned previously, and it's easy to read it here when we come to Numbers chapter 20 here, that it says, Moses, verse 11, Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. Well, here brings up an important point. In both cases, we have the same result, right? So what difference does it make what you do? As long as you get the same result, right? Well, that's human thinking, isn't it? If Moses was here, we could ask about it, and he would tell you he made a big mistake. Aaron did too. I don't know what Aaron's part was, being an accomplice, maybe not correcting Moses or something, or giving him some advice, I don't know. But God held both of them accountable for disobedience, even though the same thing was accomplished in the end. Well, was it because he smote the rock instead of speaking to the rock? Obviously, that's a mistake. Obviously, that's disobedience. Obviously, that's rebellion. The 27th chapter of Numbers and verse 14 says, he's referencing here... Uh, let me back up context. Verse 12, The Lord said unto Moses, Get thee up into this mount of Abiram, and see the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, thou also shall be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother was gathered. For ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin, in the strife of the congregation, and note this particular, to sanctify me at the water before their eyes that is in the waters of Meribah in Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Now, first point I want to make to you here is something we need to be reminded of. When you disobey God, you are rebelling against God. When Adam and Eve disobeyed the commandment in the garden, they were in open rebellion. And so are you and I. To him that knoweth to go, do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sin is rebellion. The word rebels fits every one of us because every sinner is in open rebellion to God. We come forth out of the womb in rebellion unto God. 
The rebellion of the children of Israel is what you naturally see in lost, faithless, unbelieving sinners. They can go to church and be in rebellion. They can be, quote-unquote, baptized and be in rebellion. Sin is rebellion. And here Moses and Aaron sinned in that regard. They obviously disobeyed the command, and to disobey is sin. How did this happen? What else? There's some underlying things here. Obviously, Moses was upset, and Moses was angry. This, I think, is where we've really got to start. The Bible says in Numbers 12 and 3 that there was not a man as meek as Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So, I mean, we talk about the meekness and lowliness of Christ. It is a type that we see in Moses. And Moses must have been a supernatural man in some degree to put up with these people for 40 years. I, I'm be honest with you. I've looked at it and I've studied it and I've read what he said in Numbers 11 when he got fed up and wanted to die and everything. I can, I can relate to all that. I think we all could to some degree. Uh, you know, especially anybody that's ever pastored or tried to pastor. And I'm not asking for pity or sympathy. I'm just saying it's a fact. Because God's people, quote-unquote, are not all roses. In fact, they're not even all sheep. <laughs> Satan's going to get the goats in there, and it don't take but a few goats to mess up the sheepfold. So anyway, be that as it may, Moses had the quality of that, of meekness. But on this occasion, he lost it. He was not perfect. He was irritable. He was angry. He had put up with this over and over again for 40 years, and in this particular place, it got him. The Bible makes it, makes it very clear in places. In fact, let me read a, one or passage or two back in... Uh, and let me inside, put something else here. A lot of people think it's because he called them rebels. That was his fault. No, that, that's just a part of the problem. In 17 and 10 of Numbers, God called them rebels. The Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. So they were rebels. God had acknowledged they were rebels. And so calling them that was not, you can't put your finger on it and say, well, he shouldn't have called them that name. That's what got him in. No, 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 it's not that. That was an expression that he used in his emotion and being irritable and what have you. Turn with me to Psalm 106. And this will help us with the mistake that Moses made. It's a description here. Psalms 106, 32 and 33. And this again is one of those psalms I told you about earlier, like the 78th, 105, 106, 107. And uh, speaks of the... Uh, Summary of the Exodus and so forth and so on of God's people. All right, 106 verse 32 reads, They angered him also at the water's strife, that's they angered God, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes, because they provoked his spirit so that he spake unadvisably with his lips. So God was provoked, Moses was provoked, and, of course, Moses being human on this occasion, he spake when he shouldn't have spake. He said what he shouldn't have said and unadvisedly. So that's not the mistake. That's part of the mistake, okay? 
Not calling them rebels because they indeed were, but the way he said it. And in fact, the thing that really, in fact, there's one more scripture. Let me see it here in 9 and uh, 9.24 of Deuteronomy. Moses rehearsing there before the end of uh, entering in and his death. He says, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So nothing new about him being rebels or rebellious. He was right on the mark. Whether he should have said it or not is another story. But the problem really lies in something else here. And part of his speech, what is more problematic to me in what he said is not calling them rebels, but he said, in fact, let's, let me quote it to you or show it to you in the 20th chapter here of Exodus, not Exodus, Numbers. He says in verse 10, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? You notice the pronoun? Who's going to do the doing? We are going to fetch you water out of this rock. There's the problem. Now, it's not that he said that, but it goes even beyond that. Something else. In verse 12, the Lord spake unto Moses there, Because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation in the land which I have given them. Verse 24, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, shall not enter in the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. The whole problem was stated there in verse 12. You believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses didn't go up there and speak to the rock so that it would open up and God would get the glory. He lost it. He spake and said, Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And just did like he did before in his anger and irritation and smote it twice. And I can't tell you why he smote it twice. Some speculate he hit it one time, cracked a little bit, and a little water started running out. So he went ahead and hit it again. It opened up and a big flood came. That's pure conjecture. He may have hit it twice because he's angry. I mean, the matter my mama was, the more she hit me. I mean that from a whipping standpoint, and I had it coming. I'm not talking about child abuse, okay? But, you know, if I done something really bad, you got more of it. Maybe that's why he did. But he did not, and Aaron was an accomplice, sanctify God like he would if he had been obedient and spoken in that respect, and God would have got the glory. Some of these, again, had seen at an earlier age Moses smite a rock and water come out of it. It would have been a greater miracle, would it not, instead of smiting it, because when you smite something, sometimes you do break it. How many things have you broken with your words except somebody else's feelings? You probably haven't broke many rocks with your words, have you? <laughs> we haven't solved many problems with words when something needs physical labor to get it done. So they did not sanctify the Lord. That is the ultimate mistake right there. The other things are just symptomatic of that very thing. And he says, you did this before 
the congregation. I mean, you did it in front of everybody. Remember David's sin that we've talked about? It? The Lord said, you did it secretly, but I'm going to punish you publicly. Moses' sin was publicly. And on the other hand, ironically, God punished him how? Privately. What was the cost? The cost was that Moses would not, after all this lengthy time, bring them into the promised land. Because you sanctified me not. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. We close. This is a sad part of this, but again, Moses was still quite the man, you know. In the third chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 24 through 26, in reference to the mistake here that he and Aaron made, we read these words. 324, O Lord God, and he speaks here in verse 23 as he's speaking to the children. I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness, thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or earth and can do according to thy works and according to thy might? I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. And then he tells him, Get up there and look, and you can see it, but you're not going over. Likewise, when Moses closed out Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, verse 50 through 52, it mentions there the Lord's instructing where to go, the mountain to get up to. And he says in verse 50, And die in the mount whether you go, and be gathered into your people. And the why? Again, verse 51, Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and notice here it is again, because ye sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet thou shalt see the land before thee, but you'll not go thither, the land which I give to the children of Israel. So, there was a cost to the mistake, and it cost him not going in. But again, the problem was not what he said, not his emotion. Those contributed to them not sanctifying the Lord in that manner. And some speculate, I'll throw this out there and just say it. Again, when you compare the first time, the Lord said, I'll stand before thee. The Lord didn't say that that time. And I have been guilty of something that I want to point out to you. I almost forgot it. From what we just read there in, Genesis, in Deuteronomy 3, Moses never doubted what God could do. Okay? It mentioned their unbelief. So Moses was not unbelieving God's power to do it, but this, God's will to do it. And I must confess when I read this and thought about this and studied this and that came to me, I must... I had to lift my hand and say, I'm guilty of the same thing. I don't doubt God's power to do anything. Never have once I've learned the, the power and strength and sovereignty of God. But what I have doubted is His will to do so. What am I talking about quickly here? We've exceeded our time again. Let me give you the example of Jonah. Jonah didn't doubt what God could do, did he? But he didn't like God's will of possibly doing it, did he? Remember? That was his problem. 
that very well may have been the same problem here with Moses. That why do we have to do this to you people again? You know? Here we are 40 years later and we're going to do this again? You know? I don't know. I'll leave that to you. I will close with this thought though. I don't want to leave, leave the Lord out of it. We mentioned it before. We should see Christ in all of this. How do we see Christ in this? In conclusion, very simply, Christ was the living water, was He not? Was He, as we studied in Sunday school, stricken and smitten of God? I've preached a sermon before. The smitten rock, and it wasn't the rock that, that Moses smit, smit, uh, smote. It was Christ smitten at Calvary's cross, right? And what happened similarly there? The Bible says in John 19 and 34 that a soldier came along and stuck a spear in the side of the Lord Jesus Christ and forthwith there came out what? Gushed out blood and water. And it's by that blood we're saved. The water out of the rock quenched their thirst, but the blood from Christ's side saved our souls. So when you think about these miracles, He claved the rocks. Don't forget the fact that Christ suffered, died, and also has a wound in His side from which water and blood flowed to atone for you and my sins. That's the focus, really, of He claved the rock. God bless this to your hand. Come ahead, son.